Hello, my friends. Red here, and you are listening to Low Pressure Weather. Small talk to sleep to. What's the weather like where you are? This week, like much of the U.S., it has been a scorcher here. The globe has had some of the hottest days ever recorded in modern history. I've found myself looking skyward and wishing for more clouds and rain, a bit of respite from the heat. Are you wishing for cooler weather? Maybe for a break in the humidity? Send over an email to lowpressureweather at gmail.com if you'd like to share. I'll be waiting. This week I've found us some articles on clouds, their classifications, phenomena, and decay. Shall we get started? The sun, reading signs in the sky. March 6, 1881. And if you're curious, it was a Friday. The way for every man to be his own weather prophet. Clouds that foretell storms and others that promise fair weather. Battles that are fought by misty squadrons in the sky. It's easy enough to be a weather prophet. All you've got to do is keep your eye on the sky, and it will be a very sly storm indeed that steals a march on you. The speaker was a gentleman living on Columbia Heights, Brooklyn, who has done a great deal of sky gazing, but who says he has no desire for a public reputation as a weather-wise man. Look out of the south window. Do you notice those long, narrow, misty-looking clouds in parallel rows that seem to be advancing upward from behind Staten Island with the precision and steadiness of a line of battle? They are the advance guard of an approaching storm. The barometer has not given the slightest sign, and it probably will not until that skirmish line has reached the zenith, which may take hours. And yet, I am as certain that a storm is coming as though I saw the rain falling. Do you mean that you can foretell a storm by the clouds sooner than a barometer? Anybody can. These winter storms, especially, announce their approach sometimes two or three days in advance. Whenever you see those parallel stripes of clouds rising in the southwest and moving in ranks, slowly across the sky, you may be sure that wet or snowy weather is at hand. Why should not the clouds foretell the weather? There cannot be a storm or any considerable change of weather without clouds, and there is almost as much difference perceptible in clouds as in faces if people would but notice them closely. Do clouds always foretell storms? No, some clouds give assurance of fair weather. A very little practice will enable anybody to read the language of the clouds. 
It is more like studying a language than you would suppose. You know in Latin, a change in the termination of a word changes its meaning. Just so, a change in the form of clouds changes their meaning. It is no mere chance work, but a certain change always means the same thing. If Siri turn into zero strati, every meteorologist knows what that means just as well as the boy at the head of the Latin class knows the difference between Hick and Huns. Then clouds are not all of one kind. By no means. About 80 years ago, Luke Howard, an English Quaker whose business required him to take long walks in the open air, completed a classification of clouds that has ever since been in general use. One of the most wonderful phenomena ever witnessed in the sky led Howard to study the clouds. This was the great dry fog of 1783 that overspread the whole of Europe and part of Asia and America, reaching to the summits of the Alps and lasting from one to three months according to the locality. The greatest terror prevailed and the end of the world was thought to be at hand. Howard noticed that there are three principal kinds of clouds which he called cirrus, cumulus, and stratus. Anybody can see the difference between these clouds at a glance. The cirrus is the highest of all clouds. You must have often seen it in the form of white filaments, sometimes called mare's tails and cat's tails, stretched across the blue sky like delicate lacework. It is very beautiful. Travelers say on the summit of lofty mountain peaks from which they could look down upon the heavier clouds. They have seen these wispy, seary floating overhead. Apparently as far away as when seen from the earth. In calm summer evenings, long after sundown, these clouds may be seen reflecting the most delicate tints of color from the last rays of sunlight that illuminate the higher regions of the atmosphere. The Siri are composed of little crystals of ice. These clouds and their derivatives cause the halos that are sometimes seen about the sun and the moon. It was probably zero strati that caused the great display of moon dogs and circles the other day at Denver. Cirrus clouds indicate both storms and clear weather according to their appearance. If they appear in their most delicate forms after stormy weather, they are a sign that a period of settled weather is at hand. When they show themselves in parallel streaks 
after fair weather has lasted for some time, they are the first indication of approaching change. Siri, when greatly tangled and knotted, snow stormy weather close at hand. If their borders grow faint and indistinct, there is rain coming. Cumulus clouds are characteristic of summer. The farmers call them thunderheads when they poke their smooth white rounded summits glittering in the sun like silver above the horizon. In that form, they are the forerunners of local thunderstorms. These mountainous looking clouds sometimes actually exceed the greatest peaks of the Andes or Himalayas in size. When cumulus clouds appear in a warm, pleasant day, not very large, distinct, though soft in outline, and resembling cotton balls, they indicate continued fair, dry weather. On the other hand, when they grow larger, darker, and more formidable, they foretell storms. Just before rain, they sometimes seem to throw off little fleecy clouds around their edges. Goethe, the great German poet who was fond of studying the clouds, said that as long as cumuli have sharply defined borders and a white color, a continuance of good weather may be expected. Cumulus clouds often form soon after sunrise and temper the heat of a midsummer day. If they gradually disappear toward evening, the weather will remain serene. But if, as the sun goes down, they grow darker and more numerous, then look out for rain. The cumuli are the capitals or condensed summits of invisible columns of vapor rising from the earth. They do not attain nearly so great a height as the Siri. Cumuli are generally from half a mile to two miles high. Siri vary in height from two or three miles to six or eight. The stratus is most common at night and in winter. Those long ranks of clouds that I pointed out to you in the southwest and which show a coming northeast storm are a variety of stratus. They always appear in the form of stripes or broad low curtains covering more or less of the sky. The night stratus is formed of mists from swamps, rivers, and moist ground. It generally rises and changes into small cumuli on summer mornings. The 
other kind of stratus appearing at considerable heights in the fall, winter, and early spring is, as I have said, an invariable forerunner of stormy weather. These three kinds of clouds do not always appear in their simple forms. They are frequently mingled together and four varieties of these derivative clouds have been distinguished. The cirrocumulus consists of little roundish white clouds floating at a high elevation and often resembling a flock of sheep resting upon the blue background of the sky. In winter, these clouds frequently appear before a thaw. Between summer showers, they accompany increased heat. They are common in dry weather. The cirrostratus commonly appears in shoals resembling fish in shape. Its popular name is the mackerel sky. It is almost a sure indication of approaching stormy weather. When it settles down into a thin veil covering the sky and making the sun and moon look dim, it is certain to be followed by snow or rain. You will see it in the form following those streaks that are now rising in the southwest and covering the sky before the storm comes. Did you ever see a battle in the clouds? The cirrocumuli and cirrostrati are natural enemies. The first named as a fair weather and the last a foul weather cloud. When they meet, as they sometimes do after a summer storm has partially cleared, there is a war in the sky. The cloudy squadrons encounter in mid-heaven to settle the question whether sunshine or storm shall prevail. If the cirrocumuli succeed, the weather will clear. If the cirrostrati are victorious, there will be more foul weather. It is a war of destruction, and the battle usually ends by the total disappearance of one or the other of the two kinds of clouds, all assuming the form of the successful party. Cumulostratus is the grandest of all clouds, and so it is the appropriate forerunner of great storms. If you ever happen to go up the Hudson when a thunderstorm was gathering in the Catskills. You must have seen this cloud dropping on the mountaintops and hiding the great peaks like a vast curtain. Whenever you see these clouds looming up, you may be sure that a violent change in the atmosphere is close at hand. The cumulostratus 
consists of a layer or foundation of dark colored stratus cloud nearest the earth, surmounted by bulky piles of very dense cumulus, hot white and smooth like the fair weather cumulus, but rough, dark, and threatening. One of the grandest sights in the world is the majestic march of the cumulostratus clouds across a hilly countryside district in advance of a violent storm. Animals, as well as men, are intimidated by the fearful appearance of the heavens and show their fear by trembling and hurrying to places of shelter. These clouds commonly make their appearance first in the northwest, rising black and threatening above the horizon. Soon the rumbling of heavy thunder is heard. And as the clouds approach the zenith, blotting out the sun, fitful gusts of wind arise, followed by periods of oppressive calm. Sometimes a whirling motion is seen in the clouds. Then look out if a black funnel seems to drop from the cloud to the earth. It is a tornado and nobody can tell what damage it may do. The cumulostrati foretell a storm several hours in advance. The longer they linger near the horizon, the more violent the storm is apt to be. The last class, or rather subclass of clouds, is the nimbus, or black rain cloud, which spreads over the heavens just as the storm begins. It is made up of a mixture of all the other kinds and appears in every storm, but is seen in its most characteristic form in a thunderstorm. Sometimes it approaches a few hundred feet of the earth, and at other times it is 2,000 or 3,000 feet high. While it always appears black or gray from beneath, it is in fact surmounted by a snowy white top of cirrus or cumulus. I have sometimes in the hills of central New York seen from an elevated station the passage of a storm through a distant valley. The glittering upper surface of the clouds then presents a beautiful appearance. While underneath they are dark and forbidding and the pouring rain hides the landscape. On account of the mixing together of the various classes of clouds, it is sometimes difficult to accurately distinguish them apart. A little practice, however, will enable any observant person to detect the prevailing 
characteristics. Indications vary slightly for different localities and some knowledge of local peculiarities is therefore necessary. Anyone who watches the clouds can form many weather rules for himself that he will find at least as trustworthy as the predictions of old probabilities. That last article mentioned moon talks seen a few weeks prior at Denver. I was able to find an article about those very moon dogs. This is from the Fremont County Record, February 19th, 
to imagine the minute prisms of ice floating or descending through the air in all positions, but owing to the resistance presented by the air to the action of their weight, taking a special horizontal and vertical directions. The white horizontal and vertical bands can be explained by reflection from the vertical faces of crystals descending in a calm air and in all possible asthmas. The paracelne may be considered as being the intensified effect at certain points of greater condensation of the dispersed rays at the angles of minimum dispersion so that they are to the halo what the halo is to the diffused light thrown on the surrounding cloud. The explanation of these simple parts is quite satisfactory. That of the more complicated and peculiar phenomena are extremely difficult and can only be explained in a general way by a variety of changes, including reflection and double refractions of which light is capable and to the probable effects of extraordinary forms and combinations of the crystals. Effect. So far as we have been able to search, no satisfactory description of the display as seen here or elsewhere has ever been written and there is no pen in existence which is capable of bringing out that beauty to the intensity needed to make it accurate and complete. The cut at the head of these columns is an excellent outline of the appearance seen here, but fails entirely in giving to the reader an idea of the beauty of its varied movements, its colors, and its magnificence. The first scene was the moon rising in front of whose face appeared a gossamer veil of crystals through which the white rays of light were shining more beautifully intensified than are the beams upon a voluptuous summer's night. From the upper and lower surfaces, white spangles of light shot up and down into the frost-filled atmosphere and disappeared in space. Upon either side and in beautiful proximity for the result brought about were two images of the moon reflecting to us from the ice prisms red and orange, the violet, and the green of the rainbow, softened and modified by the milder rays causing them. From these images, there went long bands of white light up and down towards either horizon. 
Soon, the bands were formed into a frost-white circle around the luminary, and the images became more magnificent in size and loveliness. From them, they reached away out and almost completely around the horizon, another dimmer but distinct circle, and at the points of compass, south and west, the parasielne appeared bright, white spots of light, of not the brilliancy of the mock moons, yet more distinct than the circle in which they had formed. Up overhead, outside of the first, but within the last, and with no ring of its own, Hazar of Light was formed in the crystals with its convex side towards the now charmed moon. Upon that side, towards the luminary, there were the rainbow hues again, distinctly seen, while it was upon the inside of the first form circle that those colors appeared. Between the inner sides of the big ring are seen many of the most prominent stars in the firmament which could easily be seen as beautiful accompaniments of the grand sky. They are all shown in our cutout in exactly the positions they appeared when the sketch was made. In order to get a clear idea of the outline of the appearance, the reader should hold this paper at arm's length and above the head. Then the moon will be at the lower point of view as it was that night. The rainbow will be overhead and the larger circle will reach around to a sufficient distance to give a satisfactory explanation of how the frost crystals refracted and reflected on the moon's rays to us in this locality. We are indebted to Mr. Schmitz, one of the proprietors of the German house opposite the depot and to Mr. L. M. Nelson for the sketch, the former gentleman being the artist who drew it, and the latter the engraver. There was a short note in the same paper a week or so later that stated that this edition of the newspaper flew off the stands because of the description and illustration of the moon dogs. I have heard that skiers see sun dogs often enough. I have no desire to hurl myself down the side of a mountain with sticks on my feet. So I cannot confirm. Have you seen a moon or a sun dog? I have seen plenty of clouds shaped like various dogs and bunnies and ducks. 
Recently, I saw a cloud shaped like a mermaid. It was all hair and tail. Our last article comes to us from Minnesota, the St. Paul Global. Sunday, March 14th, 1897. Study of the clouds. Their formation has become definitely understood. Until John Aiken proved by experiment that cloud particles are formed by the adhesion of water vapor to the dust particles invisibly floating in the atmosphere, little was known about the real nature of clouds, says Dr. J.G. McPherson in London Knowledge. The lowest stage in the formation of clouds is the one's little understood phenomenon of haze. The sultry haze, the suffocating fogs, the drizzling mists, and the thin rain, as well as the great thunder rain and pelting hail, and the feathery snow are now all known to be different stages of the formation of the vapor in the air on the minute dust particles at different grades of heat and cold. The formation of clouds is now distinctly understood, but the attention of the meteorologist has not been so much directed to the decay of clouds. Now, the process of decay in clouds takes place in various ways. A careful observer may discern the reverse process of the formation of clouds. In May 1896, my attention was particularly drawn to the Strathmore in Scotland. In the middle of that exceptionally sultry month, I was arrested by a remarkable phenomenon. It was the hottest May for 72 years and the driest for many years. The sky was full of clouds of varied thickness and form. But suddenly, the sun shone through a thinner portion of a cloud into the north sky began to open. In a quarter of an hour, there was more blue to be seen than clouds. At the same time, near the horizon, a haze was forming, gradually getting denser as time wore on. In an hour, the whole of the clouds were gone, and the moisture returned to its thin air form. This was a pointed and rapid illustration of the decay from cloud form to haze and then to the blue vapory sky. It was an instance of the reverse process. As the sun cleared through, the temperature in the cloudland rose and evaporation took place on the surface of the cloud particles until by an untraceable 
but still a gradual process. Through fog, the haze was formed. Even then, the heat was too great for a definite haze, and the water vapor returned to the air, leaving the dust particles in invisible suspension. Of course, the water vapor was there. Otherwise, I could not have seen in the sky the varied shades of blue from the horizon of the zenith, deepening as one looked upward. Through this was a striking illustration on account of the particular temperature and drought. Still, it was only a practical instance of the theory of cloud decay thus indicated. Never strike the earth. Clouds decay in another way. Whenever a cloud is formed, it begins to rain and the drops shower down in immense numbers, though most minute in size. No doubt it is only in certain circumstances that these drops are attracted together so as to form large drops which fall to the earth in genial showers to refresh the thirsty soil or in a terrible deluge to cause great destruction. But when the temperature and pressure are not suitable for the formation of what we commonly know as rain, the fine drops fall into air under the cloud where they immediately evaporate from their dust-free surfaces if the air is dry and warm. Whenever a cloud overhangs, fine rains falling so that the cloud is in the process of decay, but this rain may not reach the earth on account of the dryness of the stratum of air beneath the cloud and the heat of the air over the earth so that on a summer day with gold fringe fleecy clouds sailing overhead it is really raining but the drops being very small evaporate long before reaching the earth. It rains, but much of this melting of the clouds is reproduced by a wonderful circularity. The moisture evaporating, seizing other dust particles in a cooler stratum forming cloud particles falling again and so ad finitum during the existing circumstances. That is the reason why surfaces may be exposed to a cloud on a mountainside without being wetted. Radiant heat is the cause of the remarkable result. The rays of the sun which strike the upper part of the cloud not only heat the surface but also penetrate the cloud and fall on the surface of bodies generating heat there. 
these heated surfaces again radiate heat in the super incumbent air. This warm air receives the fine raindrops from the decaying cloud and dissolves the moisture from the dust particles before the moisture can reach the surface exposed. That a vast amount of radiant heat rushes through a cloud is clearly shown by exposing a thermometer with black bulb and vacuo. On some occasions, a thermometer would indicate from 40 degrees to 50 degrees above the temperature of the air, thus rendering the surface quite dry. Hence, seats, walls, posts, etc. may be dry, though in the middle of a cloud, which is gray. How some clouds decay. To the decay of clouds, Mr. Aiken has lately been directing his attention, his observations made in the clouds themselves have shown that there is a difference in structure of clouds which are in the process of formation and those which are in the process of decay. In clouds in formation, the water particles are much smaller and far more numerous than in clouds in decay. And while the particles in clouds in decay are large enough to be seen with the unaided eye when they fall on a properly lighted micrometer, they are so small in clouds in formation, that if the condensation is taking place rapidly, the particles cannot be seen without the aid of a lens of considerable magnifying power. The form of some clouds cannot be explained by the processes going on in the ordinary formation of clouds. We must look on the processes going on in decay for an explanation of these forms. Most authorities have made a wrong assumption as to the different shapes of clouds as classified by Mr. Luke Howard in 1802 is the primary forms cirrus, cumulus, and stratus. The intermediate cirrocumulus, cirrostratus, and cumulostratus in the compound form Nimbus. They have assumed that these different shapes are in the process of formation and that the whole explanation of the shapes taken by the clouds is founded on the supposition. Now, Mr. Aiken has pointed out that ripple mark clouds, for instance, have been clouds of decay. It is generally understood that these ripple markings are due to the general movements of the air giving rise to a series of eddies 
the axis of the eddies being horizontal and roughly parallel to each other. Now, according to Mr. Aiken, it is evident that the air revolving around these horizontal axes that is in a vertical plane will at the lower part of its path be subjected to compression and at the upper part to expansion. A natural result of this will evidently be supposing the air to be nearly saturated with moisture, a tendency for cloudy condensation to take place in the air at the upper part of its path. And it is this cloudy condensation in the upper part of the eddies that is supposed to produce the ripple-like cirrus each ripple marking indicating the upper part of an eddy. The ripple marked cirrus. It is difficult to imagine that the small amount of elevation and consequent expansion and cooling could give rise to so dense an amount of clouding as is generally observed for any clouding produced in this way would likely be very thin and filmy. Accordingly, another explanation must be given for the production of ripple-marked cirrus clouds and that is in the decay of clouds. These are generally formed out of some cirrostratus or similar clouds. When these are observed in fine weather, it will be found that they frequently change to ripple-marked cirrus in the process of decay and vanishing. The cirrostratus gradually thins away till it attains such a depth that if there are any eddies at their level, the eddies will break the cloud up into nearly parallel masses, the clear air being drawn in between the eddies. The eddies here do not produce the clouding, but break up the uniform cirrostratus cloud into the ripple-marked cirrus. Mr. Aitken points out in support of this theory that lenticular cirrus clouds are frequently observed with ripple markings in one or more sides of them. Just where the cloud is thin enough to be broken through by eddies. The ripple markings get nearer and nearer the center as the cloud decays and at last when nearly dissolved, these markings are extended quite across the cloud in peculiar mackerel appearance, so gloriously seen on the 1st of November. Of course, ripple clouds may be produced by formation but this seems exceptional and the decay theory is the most probable. 
we are forced to the inevitable conclusion that in clouds there is not always development but sometimes degeneration not always formation but sometimes decay to this subject meteorologists must direct more attention well my friends I do hope you're asleep or have finished the work you were working on and I hope you've enjoyed listening to the storm with me it's been pouring and lightning and thundering all evening It's quite late here, so I think I'll take my own advice and get some sleep or good rest. Next time you're outside, look up. Until next time.